This is The Shift Podcast. Today on The Shift Daily Podcast, why is there so much fighting over Gaza, over Israel? James Galvin, professor of modern Middle East history at the University of California, helps us understand the geopolitics of Gaza. Who has historically lived in the region? How did we get to this place? And how two different types of nationalism have led to conflict. Are you okay with really old senior dogs? How about the Eiffel Tower? Grammy award-winning Canadian singer-songwriter Alex Cuba is back with new music and an inspiring story about following your dreams and sharing it with your family. And Ryan O'Donnell is here, the millennial on the radio, reviewing five horror movies ahead of Halloween. First up, his review of Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 3. It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. It has become very clear to me, thanks to your text messages, emails, and more, that the history of Gaza, the history of Israel, is not clear for everybody. With everything that's going on in Israel today, that news is changing hour by hour, minute by minute at times. And we wanted to understand the history behind this place, the significance of Gaza, Israel, the West Bank, Palestine, and all those bits and pieces. I think that regardless of faith, regardless of all of the different uh, people that are there and why they believe in what they believe and why they live into how they live, until we understand what's going on on the place that they are, I don't think we can look at the rest of it. And that's where we wanted to start this conversation. Joining us now is um, from University of California, Los Angeles, James Gelvin, is a professor in modern Middle East history, which is a little bit of a juxtaposition, I would say, uh, modern Middle East history. Um, James, thanks for being here. Appreciate you. Well, thanks for having me, Shane. Uh, complicated. You know, most things in life, James, we can say it's simple, but it ain't easy, right? When we look at all kinds of topics in life. This particular place, I'm not sure we can apply the it's simple, but it ain't easy, a cliche to it, can we? Uh, no, uh, not at all. It's small. You could say that about it. Yeah. Uh, and it's produced far more history than could be consumed locally. But uh, other than that, uh, it's fairly complex. And, um, well, here's how I think people should think about it. Okay. Just boil it down to the bare essential. I think that. The way people should think about it is that this is a clash between two nationalisms. Uh, it's the longest-running nationalist dispute uh, in history now. Uh, thank you, Northern Ireland, for solving your problem. Uh, so right. um, it's a two groups of people bound to, to themselves by a uh, nationalism, claim... Uh, the rights to a small hunk of territory, and it's not very big. I mean, basically, it's about the size of New Jersey, uh, the territory that stretches from uh, the Mediterranean to the Jordan River. Well, let me create uh, some context on size um, for everybody there, James, if that's okay. Um, sure. So the uh, Israel itself is around 22,000 square kilometers, roughly. Um, 22,000. In Canada... PEI, a little island on the East Coast, is almost 6,000. So three, four or, f four or five times um, the size of PEI, just to create some context. And if you look at Ontario, it's a million square kilometers. If um, you look at some of the other provinces, like British Columbia is almost 100,000. Um, 
so that'll give you some context of how big um, Israel is comparative to PEI. So it's four times the size of PEI. The entire country, Gaza, is 45 square kilometers. Like, that's how small it is. That's what we're talking about. Uh, please continue, James, with, uh, with uh, the, uh, as you were going with size before I interrupted there. Oh, no, I mean, uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, as I said, that this is the small territory doesn't mean small history and doesn't mean small conflict. Right. Uh, it's an outsized conflict, and mainly because it's actually drawn in outsiders uh, into the conflict. As a matter of fact, there's this whole period of time from 1948 to 1993 when the Palestine issue, the Palestinian issue, the refugees and those who remained, that fell off the map entirely, and it became what's called an Arab-Israeli issue. In other words, an issue between Israelis and Egyptians, Israeli and Syrians, Israelis and Jordanians. And uh, we've seen in the most recent period that there's been normalization of, of uh, relations between Israel and some of its neighbors. We've seen that uh, you know they have a peace treaty with, the, uh, with Egypt, they have a peace treaty with Jordan, and that hasn't brought peace, because the only thing that could bring peace is a peace treaty between Israelis and Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Um, let's can we go back even further? I think that um, can we go back into what was this land before it was Israel? Because a lot of people think that Israel has been there forever. Now, while the history of this land as Mecca and all these places so significant in all things history and faith, um, there is um, this pocket of time after the Second World War, where it all started to change, James. Can we can we look at what that time is and, and what was there beforehand? Well, what was there beforehand was the Ottoman Empire. And uh, that stretched from present-day Turkey, actually stretched from the Balkans to present-day Turkey, to um, the Arab lands and into the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, it was a large empire, uh, and uh, it lasted for about 400 years. Uh, and at the end of World War One. Uh, the victorious Entente powers, Britain, France, United States, took the Ottoman Empire apart and uh, divided it up among themselves, France and Britain. And Britain got uh, what was called the Mandate for Palestine. Now, this was given by the League of Nations, uh, and the Mandate for Palestine was there. They were supposed to supervise it, uh, bring it up to the conditions of the modern world, as the League of Nations said, and then granted independence. Uh, the British went in and were completely flummoxed. They just could not do it. So mm-hmm. in 1948, they left. Uh, they just dumped the Palestine question on the United Nations and said, we're out of here. And that's when all hell broke loose. So, yeah, I mean, so this really, in at least in a parallel, I mean, the, the faith part is obviously such a big part there, but the... Um, the in a parallel is similar to what we saw in Eastern Europe post World War II. That you know we, all of these decisions that were made after all of that, maybe domino effect is the right way to describe it, James. That the domino effect sort of sp- has spilled over into this particular pocket, similarly as it did between redrawn borders of everything from Ukraine to Poland and everything that happened around there after uh, the Second World War II. Yes, that's precisely it. And you can look and see that, you know, basically there's all sorts of things involved. There was the, uh, they made politics out of ethnicities, for example. They made politics out of religion. Uh, But all of it goes back to politics. 
And um, when we identify that as, you know, Jews on the one hand and uh, Muslims on the other hand, that really is not what it's all about. What it's really all about is two people who claim the rights of ownership over a piece of property. And uh, their identities are such that, well, for example, Jews are held together by a, na a nationalism called Zionism. And the genius of Zionism was that it took a religious community, Jews, and it turned it into a national community. So this nation, of course, had projects itself back in history the way all nations do. Uh, the Greeks go back to ancient Greece. The French go back to our ancestors, the Gauls. And the uh, Jewish nation, the Zionist nation, projected itself back to uh, Solomon and David's kingdom. As such, there's an attachment to this particular piece of land. As a matter of fact, at one point, the British wanted to give the Zionist movement uh, Uganda. Uh, and they said, no, thank you. We want to go back to this area of Palestine. Uh, the Palestinians uh, began to think of themselves as a nation because of Zionist immigration into Palestine. And so they began to project their history back as well. And so they are just descendants of the Canaanites and the Philistines and what have you. They're not. But uh, basically, all nationalisms do this. They make history where history really hadn't occurred before. Yeah. Well, in this particular land, of course, is the intersection of so many faith books, right? I mean, um, the many of the characters that are in all of the books um, are very sim similar in name or the same in name storylines cross over and everything else. Now, for someone who's not living there, probably a little easier to step back on the pragmatic look, obviously, of the multitudes of different, um, you know, faith books that are there. Um, what was the country you said that they, they were offered, but they said no to? Sorry, I missed that. Uh, Uganda. Uganda. So, like, at what point... So, I mean, this is post-World Wars where, um, you know, well, everything that happened with Jews in the Second World War, I mean, the genocide that was that was going on. Is it too simplistic to say that, you know, these countries like Britain basically said, hey, by the way, you probably don't feel safe in your home. How about a new home? And then offered Uganda, they said, well, let's go back to our faith home. And they said, perfect, let's go there. And is that really too simplistic of a way to say that that's, this is really how Israel started? Yeah, I think it might be. Okay. Um, Zionism is a part of the Zionist movement that calls itself political Zionism. And what they did was they went to practically every ruler in Europe and they said, uh, can you help us out here? We want a land of our own. Now, uh, Theodor Herzl, who's one of the founders of the Zionist movement, wrote a book and he said that the ideal place for the Zionist movement to end up, for the Jews to end up, would be either the Western United States or Argentina. So uh, he himself was not too beholden to the notion of moving back to Palestine. But Eastern European Jews wanted to move back to Palestine, so that was their thing. Uh, the uh, political Zionists were able to push the British uh, to um, uh, offer what was called the Balfour Declaration, which was a, a commitment by the British that they supported Zionist aims of going back to Palestine. The idea of establishing a home, not a state, but a home in Palestine uh, for the Jewish people. Hmm. Um, Argentina, that's interesting. Why Argentina? Uh, because there's a large Jewish community there and uh, there was a lot of empty land. It doesn't, Same. 
Same thing with the West, Western United States. It would have been interesting to see uh, the Zionists, you know, contend with Mormons in the, the American West. But yeah. that, that's another story. Well, yeah, no kidding. And, and, and I find it incredibly um, interesting that Argentina comes up in this. I've never heard uh, this is all new information to me. This is I'm just learning here because Argentina is the place that they assert that the Nazis went to. So that's also yeah. strange, isn't it? Yeah, well, uh, very likely they went for the same reason, which is they could just be left alone. Hmm. So uh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so I'm guessing that in this little idea about hey, let's 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 move um, the Jewish people to Uganda. I'm assuming much like Britain did uh, in other war scenarios with places like Czechoslovakia and all the other things that happened. Nobody checked with Uganda. Nobody checked with Palestine. I'm assuming to say, how would you like a neighbor? Uh, nobody checked. No, yeah. no. Uh, the idea was that imperial powers could do what they want. They were the civilized powers. Uh, and uh, basically the whole idea of moving Jews back in was to help the civilizing mission uh, in Palestine. And the, the idea was what the British said is that the inhabitants of Palestine would welcome the Jews because they would bring up economic opportunity and this, that and the other thing. Well, the problem was is that the only real resource that the indigenous inhabitants of Palestine Palestine had was land. And the Zionists not only, well, they bought land, and but they uh, did not allow uh, the Palestinians or people who would become Palestinians uh, to actually work the land. They wanted to have a separate economy as well as a separate political sphere. Mm. So uh, you had a huge amount of landless uh, peasants uh, you know, particularly as more and more Jews came to Palestine and the biggest of the um, immigrations, waves of immigration, occurred right on the eve of World War II. And this was because the situation in Europe for Jews was getting worse and worse and they had right. to flee. So, mm -hmm. uh, but they came in largest, the largest numbers, uh, larger than ever before. And this created an immense conflict between them and the population that was living there. Hmm. We've, we've, the conversation around colonialism is an interesting one to me, James. I, I, I can't help but feel like this is part of this. As I learn more about the history, and I, I am not an expert in this, that's why I'm asking questions. And um, I mean, Ireland and Zimbabwe are really the two countries that completely left the Commonwealth like entirely. Barbados just did a step away, kind of like a three-quarter step away for their independence. And colonialism as a conversation, especially around indigenous culture in Canada, has been such an incredibly intense conversation about uh, reconciliation, making reparations, fixing things, getting it right. But yet I don't hear colonialization as a conversation around Israel. And is that on purpose or am I missing the point here? Because if we're going to talk about colonialization, wouldn't that be part of the conversation based on the history and the way it happened? Uh, the Palestinians actually do use words like colonialism and imperialism, uh, you know, for uh, the, the conflict. Um, but what the Israelis have done has been to to flip the conversation. Uh, for example, in my books, I talk about the indigenous inhabitants of Palestine, meaning, of course, the people who were there when these European Jews came to Palestine. But what the Israelis say, what the Zionists say is that they are the indigenous population. They were thrown right. out of Palestine by the Romans. 
and they want to return home again to Palestine. Now, um, you know, basically that takes it away from out of this whole conversation of settler colonialism that uh, we would, you know, ordinarily look at a place like that as being. And, you know, basically the United States, Canada, Australia, South Africa, you know, these are colonial states that, you know, were, were settled by, you know, uh, people who were not the indigenous inhabitants. Same thing with, with uh, Israel. Uh, there were colonial states that were settled by people who were not the indigenous inhabitants. Hmm. But the faith book says you belong here, therefore, I mean, the, both of these groups are so deeply, uh, faith is deeply woven into everything that's going on. And I was, I was really amazed, and I don't say this to be critical, I say it because I was truly uh, awestruck by some video footage that was, that was in the news about, you know, the attacks in Gaza and everything that's led to Gaza. And they, they basically had said, you know, there's bombs going off, bad things, bad things, bad things. But then everyone stop for prayer, right? And so the faith part is so deeply woven that it's like the only thing that pushes pause on war for a few minutes is that. And so that just, it's the faith part, I guess, that really over starts to overcomplicate at this point versus, versus geography. I think what, what, what we have to do is we have to look at this notion of faith. And we'll, you know we tend to look at it as something that hasn't changed in thousands of years. And, you know, if our ancestors believed in something in a certain way, then we will. But the meaning and function of religion has shifted over time, and particularly in the modern period. So now religion becomes a, a marker of identity. So it's actually very, very interesting that, you know, both the Zionists and the Palestinians um, are able to use religion uh, to um, uh, actually as the identifier, identifying mark of, you know, their national project. So what we have is on the Israeli side, for example, even within the government, we have religious Zionists who say, well, God granted us this. We have, we have a covenant with God. This is our land. And, you know, we have to go back to our land and settle it and spread our settlements. And actually, the area that was settled, that was the center of David and Solomon's kingdom wasn't the coastal area that Israel now has, but it was the West Bank, which the Israelis called Judea and Samaria. Okay. So you have these religious zealots uh, on the one hand who use religion, you know, uh, as a uh, to advance nationalism. But you have the same thing going on on the Palestinian side. What is Hamas all about? If you read the charter of Hamas, what you'll see is they start off by saying that Palestine is a religious endowment to the Muslim people. You know, and so therefore we have the right to expel the people who have settled here who are not Muslims. So, again, religion is used in a symbolic way. But ultimately, both the religious Zionists and Hamas are nationalist organizations. They want to establish a state there, and uh, they want to have exclusive control of that territory. They want sovereignty. Hmm. I think that that's interesting. I've never taken that look before and that frame of religion as identity versus a belief. And when you go back in history, some of the books you can read so far long ago, um, that religion was just the belief system. It wasn't who your identity was. And then maybe country because religion had crossed from country to country. Um, that's really interesting. That's something to dig into in the future. Um, James, when we look at Palestine, um, 
we've seen, I mean, this is not everybody either. Is that a fair statement? Because, I mean, there are Israelis and Palestinians that are working together to try to build a cohesive um, society. There are all kinds of different groups that try to intertwine and, 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 and build a, a life that's fair and free for everybody. But Palestine, from some countries, is not recognized as an independent state. Some do. Is that only because it has not been as organized politically and one would say, according to Western standards, maybe as properly as that others have, like Israel is just more organized politically? Uh, that's definitely the case. Okay. And um, there was the, uh, well, not, go back to 1948. The Israelis look at 1948 as the Independence Day uh, in 1948. The Palestinians call it something different. They call it the Nakba, the disaster, because uh, about three quarters of a million Palestinians had to flee their homes and ended up on the other side of armistice lines. They, some of them were frightened out by acts of terrorism. Some of them were expelled. And uh, a majority of them probably left a war zone because it's just dangerous to be in a war zone. So uh, we have this you know, very, very different experiences on, on the two sides of what the early period was all about, what would what, what actually happen, different memories of, of that. And both sides, you know, at this point, go back to their memory. So uh, the one of the reasons why, undoubtedly, uh, the Israelis had a hard time convincing people from north of Gaza to move to the south, and then uh, maybe even further, was the idea that they've already moved. 70% of the Gazan population are refugees. So uh, they have an experience of having moved once before and not being allowed back into their homes. So they don't want to try the, the same thing twice. Mm -hmm. Okay, so tell me about Gaza. It's this tiny little pocket. It's on the, uh, on the seaside, on the west side. Why is it different, governed different than the West Bank? I mean, Hamas was there, uh, yet it all is still basically all controlled by Israel. Um, why, is, why is Gaza different? Well, the Palestinian national movement uh, split in 2007. Uh, the dominant faction, which is now in the West Bank, uh, it's called the Palestinian Authority, is a structure. And then the Palestinian Authority is made up of a faction of the Palestine Liberation Organization. That faction is Fatah, the um, president of uh, the uh, Palestinian Authority. Uh, is the uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who's a member of Fatah. Uh, in uh, 2006, in spite of the fact that uh, Fatah controls uh, the executive branch, in 2006, the Hamas won the legislative uh, um, elections. Uh, and so Fatah were, was tried to conspire against uh, Hamas. Uh, Hamas actually jumped the gun on them and uh, basically expelled them from Gaza instead of shop there. So we have two organizations, two separate ways of approaching nationalism. One is a secular organization. One is a religious organization. They're both Palestinian nationalist organizations. Uh, one rules in the West Bank and one rules in the Gaza Strip. Wow. And the thing that, you, that your listeners should know about Gaza is that it is dense densely packed. It is one of the most densely packed uh, areas on Earth. Uh, it is extraordinarily poor. Uh, there's about a 50% unemployment rate 
before uh, two weeks ago. God knows what it is now. Um, the um, uh, population is about 50% of the population is under the age of 18. So what you have is you have a population that is being, uh, they also call it, by the way, the world's largest outdoor prison because you can't go in or go out. So what you have is this population that has very few opportunities that is uh, caged in uh, you know, by the Israelis on one side and the Egyptians on the other side, uh, and that it is a very, very angry population as well. Hmm. They're angry at their own leadership. They're angry at the Israelis. They're angry at uh, anybody who is responsible for the condition that they're in. Hmm. Well, the city of Toronto, according to a quick Google, is about 630 square kilometers. Uh, Gaza, as uh, with 2 million people, is 24 square kilometers so that'll speak to the density of all of this it's it's amazing james this this conversation um i would like to continue it i, I love the perspective of the history and the what happened to it but when you have two different people and one calls 1948 independence day and one calls it disaster day that's probably the hinge point that needs to be solved i guess in order to get resolution here yeah 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 well i mean there was this brief moment of time that, that immediately after the Cold War, when people said, okay, the Cold War's over, now we can solve everything. Mm -hmm. And that's when, that was that moment when Israelis began to look beyond Zionism. For example, many of the Israelis began to look beyond Zionism. The Palestinians and the Israelis actually uh, sat down at the uh, in Oslo and uh, set up the parameters for making peace and that sort of thing. We all thought, this is great, this will happen. And then, like much of everything that's happened since the end of the Cold War, we were disappointed. Mm -hmm. And um, the last time that uh, there was an attempt to uh, revive talks was in 2014. And it doesn't look right now that a revive, revising of the talks is uh, on the horizon. Mm -hmm. Uh, James, thanks so much for this. I, I, I'm for me, I'm a full stop at love and kindness and support and humanity and all those things. And so, uh, it is such an incredibly complicated conversation. You've allowed me the space to be full stop at understanding um, everything that leads up to the geography to this point, so we can look at the love and the and all those things. And I think it's quite magical to be able to give us that space. So thank you for that. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? 877-399-9898. That's our phone number for you to share your thoughts on the stories that just might make you ponder. Are you okay with? Old dogs. Not new tricks. Yeah, I mean, old dogs. I mean, how long do you want the dog around really is the question for me. I love dogs. Cats live a long time. And why is it, you know, that, you know, some people like the dogs that are around for 18 years. I have a Great Dane. She's my fourth Great Dane. They don't last as long, the big deep-chested dogs, without a doubt. I had two of them die at four. One died at eight. And I always say they just run out of love faster because they give so much love. So, you know, I, that's how I look at this. The oldest dog in the world, who also happens to be the goodest boy ever, has now passed away. 
The world's oldest dog ever has died. Bobby was 31 years old and spent his life in Portugal. The secret to his old age? Eating human food, never walking on a lead, and showing him love and affection, says his owner. Bobby's death was announced on social media by Dr. Karen Becker, a vet who met Bobby several times. She said, despite outliving every dog in history, his 11,478 days on earth would never be enough for those who loved him. Isn't that fun? That's from 4 News. Bobby lived on a farm in the village of Conqueros in Portugal with Costa and four cats. That's probably why he died. Sick of the cats. He was born on May 11th, 1992, when his owner was eight years old. That's cool. He looked old. He looked tired. But he, he didn't really, though. He looked like his face wasn't even that gray. I've yeah, seen dogs looked, that look way older than that. He looked tired. Yeah, but he also looked damn good for... Because in dog years, he'd be what? Like 160 years old? Mm-hmm. You know so why he, he lived so long? he pretty good for 160 years old. Because yeah. he was afraid if he died, the cats would like eat his ears. I don't, yeah, I think it's probably because he lived in Europe where the food is just better. And <laughs> he lived in like the best climate in the world and had the same owner for his entire life. So just constant love. I actually, that's a pretty good recipe for humans. Good diet, good climate, love. So mm-hmm. we could learn from Bubby there. Live longer because the cats will eat your ears. The, mm-hmm. He probably, I mean, someone will write a story on the internet because it's Portugal. Like he also had a glass of wine every day and the wine <laughs> saved his dog's life. And then we'll get an article that says, according to the internet, a glass of wine a day will let your dog live to 31. Now, the last time that happened, uh, there was that Love is Blind, that terrible reality TV show. There's a shot where one of the contestants straight up gives her dog a glass of red wine. Like, it's out of nowhere. And the whole internet was basically just canceled as woman for doing that. So well, I, I don't know if they could get away with it. They should cancel the woman for <laughs> yeah, doing that. Don't feed your dog red wine. Yeah, I'm not big on this whole cancellation thing. But if that's the case, then yes, cancel the person. That's a fair cancel. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, welcome back, by the way. How's that new Thank computer you. working out? Great, so yeah, far. Great. <laughs> okay. Ryan's going to talk about this new computer he got and how it arrived and how he's so excited that it doesn't work with his microphone. Ooh, Coming up here on Millennial on the Radio. Are you okay with acting? Big fat jazz hands. Jazz hands. I, I do enjoy the performing theater. Yeah, theater. acting's a lot of fun. I definitely prefer stage, though. You can be bigger more animated kind of feed off the crowd it's a lot of fun working on like a film set is uh, a lot of stop and go a lot of waiting Mm -hmm. uh but very rewarding to watch the final product but uh yeah it's i think it's something everybody should try even if it's a small audience or just you go to a workshop uh learning how to perform like that can even if you never use it can really teach you some pretty awesome lessons Mm, like how to lasso Ryan O'Donnell, you might actually recognize him from his uh, time he spent on Heartland, the TV show, which, just in case you were wondering, is every night when he finishes his shift, this national radio show that he's on, and he gets to create every day, he actually curls up in bed with YouTube and watches his scenes from Heartland so he can go to sleep at night. I downloaded from Netflix. It's all good. I don't (laughs) need to go on YouTube anymore. It's downloaded. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll post that link please no. to yeah, Facebook. Come on. We got to do it. We just talked about it. We might as well see you on Derek on Heartland. Oh, I hate Derek on Heartland. <laughs> you are Derek <laughs> on Heartland. Po- why don't we post something else I did? I have better no. roles and better things. It's why Heartland. 
And it's, I mean, it's a city boy who's in the country. I mean, I, I don't know how it could, like you say that it's a character you played, but I got to tell you, man, at some point you got to realize there's a lot of typecast going on with Derek. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm aware. No. <laughs> I'm aware. Okay, so uh, I will make sure Ryan gets us the link for the Facebook group at shiftheads.ca, which you can like and follow and get in the conversation. So, uh, are you okay with acting was the topic. It wasn't, are you okay with picking on Ryan for his previous <laughs> career? <laughs> this story contains nothing but bad acting, unlike Ryan's great acting. Mm. Bad acting like this. I can't talk right now. Why, Lisa? Why, Lisa? Please talk to me, please. You're part of my life. You are everything. I could not go on without you, Lisa. You're scaring me. You're lying. I never hit you. You are tearing me apart, Lisa. Why are you so hysterical? Do you understand life? Do you? Think of beauty. (laughs) That sounds like what I would sound like if I was acting. It's the Room. If you've never seen The Room, you need to watch The Room. It's the worst movie ever made, surrounded by the worst acting, and it is the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. All right. Um, a, a man's poor acting caught up to him, unrelated to this movie, though, I do believe. No, no un- unrelated. Yeah, it's just an excuse to play, play that. Tony Wiseau doing his funny voice on the radio. <laughs> a 50-year-old man from Lithuania was recently arrested in Spain after allegedly faking heart attacks at several restaurants in order to avoid paying the bill. It's a pretty good scam. Um, it's a scam he tried over 20 times this year. Yeah. Maybe a little a little much. He was identified only as uh, Idas J, but has become locally known as the Gastroyeta, <laughs> uh, which we think uh, man's that eats and jets. Oh, Castrojeta. That's why. That's what I think. Gastro yeah. eating jets leave. That's All right. my guess. That's Ryan's. You know, if you go to translate.google.com, they'll actually. I tried it. Yeah. I tried it. So instead, I asked my partner who is. Colombian and speak Spanish, and mm-hmm. Laura gave me their best guess. Okay. Yep. Most recently, the man ordered a seafood paella and two mm. whiskeys at a restaurant in late September and had a bill of about 40 bucks. According to local newspapers, the man attempted to leave without paying, but the restaurant staff stopped him and noted that he still needed to pay the bill. The scammer man became visibly upset. He was going to get the money from his hotel room. When staff refused to let him leave without paying, a man dramatically threw himself on the ground and pretended to have a heart attack, according to the news outlet. Not fooled by this. The staff called the police instead of an ambulance. The man was recognized by local authorities and arrested. I mean, it's not going to work. I mean, it's not, it's not, on the surface, it's not a bad idea. This happens in an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry keeps faking heart attacks to try to not get beat up by various different people. And it, it works, but then the consequences of faking the heart attack are worse than him getting beat up. Hmm. Here, the consequences of him faking the heart attack is that he goes to jail. Just pay the bill. Also, 40 bucks for two whiskeys and a fresh paella? Yeah. That's not bad. He's not in Canada. No, that sure. would be like $80 here. That's yeah. a good deal. I would take that. This is not even related to the lady who had 48 oysters and her date skipped no, the bill. It's not. It's not. Although the, I wrote these stories on the same day. And so that would have been funny if we had had oysters and paella, which would be a delicious meal. Fantastic. Mm, no. No, it wouldn't. <laughs> yes, it would. That's fantastic. That's amazing. You know what would be That's... a good meal? Two whiskeys right now. That's mm, it. That's the whole yeah. meal. Are you okay with 
Well, we've been to Portugal. Mm-hmm. We've been to Spain. Yeah. Uh, should we aller à la, uh, à la à France? Aller à France? Uh, uh, oui. All right. Um, are you okay with... Jono has to push the button every time I say that. That's the rule here. So that's kind of why it's funny <laughs> when I stall like this and then it ends and he's in the window there looking at me funny. See? Yeah. Are oh, you okay with the Eiffel Tower? The Eiffel Tower. I've, I've expressed several times on the show my not hesitance, but more so lack of desire to visit Paris mm. like anytime soon, maybe one day. But. I would go just to see the Eiffel Tower. Like, mm. it is still just a stunning piece of architecture. And Paris is unique in that it is such an enormous city. But around where the Eiffel Tower is, there are no new skyscrapers that dwarf it. It's not like the Calgary Tower, by the way, <laughs> which is now basically the shortest building in Calgary. Yeah. Uh, and it's not so much a tower, more of like a toothpick. Uh, and so Eiffel still stands out and uh, it is like in a stunning landmark. But if I can never see it in person, I will settle for that Lego set, which is like a meter tall and looks fantastic. Oh, that's exactly the same. You should just take your picture in front of your Lego set and be like, hanging out. At the I've Eiffel seen Tower. people do that. I've seen people <laughs> oh, no. do that. They take the Don't Lego set that. out to a field and and kind of manipulate it. And it works pretty well. Uh, I would go there just for Chateau Versailles. Yeah, to see, yeah, palace, yeah, that's that'd be amazing. Walk the halls with you, yeah, right. I mean, you, I think that it would be cool to see those places. Yeah, you know, um, Louvre, the Louvre. Uh, going, I mean, the Eiffel Tower. It'd be cool to see it at nighttime with the lights and all the thing. Get your picture, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, um, Arc de Triomphe, all those pieces. I think that's cool. Of course. Now, once you've seen them, though, meh. I'm assuming. Croissant, baguette, <laughs> paste tires. Oh, no. Uh, pastry. Jono, you're going to have to turn right. on the button for that one. It's a typo. It's a typo. It's a typo. Mm-hmm. It's a typo. Uh, pastries, I'm assuming? Pastries, yeah. Uh, Just, yeah. I didn't know if pastires was a word en français that I did not know mm. yet. Mm. There. Uh, baguettes, croissants, pastries in mm. gerinal. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I put this to the spell check. Oops. Clearly, I did it. Uh, in general, might be an interesting read. Yeah, they all remind yeah. us of France. Actually, no, a couple of them remind us of France, and a couple of them we're not quite sure what they mean. Yeah, there's no greater symbol of France than the Eiffel Tower, though. As with so many modern ideas, the tower was not initially welcomed by all Parisians. She was too modern. She was too modern, and 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 she was frightening it was a monster of iron it's so frightening for people paris just wouldn't be paris without the eiffel tower she's more than 130 years old now so it takes a little tlc to keep her functioning and beautiful it's safe right it is it is it is so we have to paint it every seven years to protect the iron of the structures from the rust jean francois martin is eiffel tower president and helped lead the bid for paris to make olympic history again in 1924, uh, for the Paris Olympics, it was the first competition that was um, live broadcasted on the radio. And the radio was on the Eiffel Tower. So we have a story with the Olympics. It's two Fs at Eiffel. 
can you do your old timey voice and uh, oh, do yeah. uh, Paris just wouldn't be Paris without the Eiffel Tower, like that guy did? Paris just wouldn't be Paris without the Eiffel Tower. It's See like, how long metal struts, taller than any other building in the world. It's just like going backwards in time. I know. It's such a strange... I don't know why they talk like that. Which <laughs> they, If they heard how we talk now, they would say the same thing. Yeah. Why is that silly man with a silly voice on the radio? Like, it'd be the same thing. Uh, that was from the Today Show, not the Ryan bit, the... the recorded yep. voice man. Yep. Something very cool happened on the Eiffel Tower this week. Police arrested a man climbing Thursday on the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> Who's Thursday? <laughs> no, on Thursday, last week, they arrested a guy who was climbing the tower in protest of something. Uh, That's not the cool thing, though. Okay. Police arrested a man climbing Thursday on the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> I want to meet this Thursday person. Uh, leading visitors to be temporarily stranded at the summit of the tower, including a reporter for the Associated Press and a Washington, D.C. couple who decided during the wait to get married. Uh, Amir Khan had been planning to propose to Cat uh, Warren later Thursday in a Paris garden, because that seems what everybody does. If your partner obviously springs a trip to Paris out of the blue for you, you know what's coming. Yeah. yeah. But when the lifts were temporarily shut down because the man climbed on Thursday... The couple was stranded and others at the top. Uh, Mr. Khan decided to spring his surprise now. Why not? You're at the top of the Eiffel Tower. It's a good story. Pat Eaton Robin, AP newsman from Connecticut, who was also stuck there, got their story perfect. That's how we have it. Quote, I figured we might be here longer than I imagined, Khan told the reporter, so I didn't want to miss dinner. And she always wanted to be proposed to on or under the Eiffel Tower, so I figured this is it. This is the moment. And she said yes. It's neat because... The reporter was there and for the whole thing and got the story, probably yeah. the pictures and, yeah, you know, uh, hey, Dude. buddy. So since we're stuck up here, can you take, I'm going to propose, can you take some pictures for me? Right? Come yeah. on, fellas. The only thing, show up. I think it's a great though, but the only thing is like you propose and you say, yes, oh, this is amazing. And then you wait for like six hours. Well, you know what's coming. Off the tower you know what's coming down. next for the couple, and this gets a little awkward for the AP guy. Yeah, yeah everyone just kind of stands around. All right, what's next? That's actually the funniest thing. I've thought about that. If you propose, what do you do after? Like they say yes, and then you just kind of stand there and be like, all right, cool. Um, um, so you want to go to dinner? Do we have to have the talk? No, no, no. Not <laughs> like you're in public. No. Not like, Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to propose in my dining quote, room. I'm going to quote your father. Uh, do what lovers do. That's what my dad says. That's oh, what okay. your dad said. Yeah. Do nice. what lovers do. I'll never forget that quote from John O'Donnell. Mm. Um, yeah. So anyway, still no question whatever happened to Thursday and why mm. um, this man was trying to climb Thursday. Mm. <laughs> That's actually what Eiffel translates to in English. Thursday? Thursday Tower. No, that's not. Don't say no, that. It's not. That's not it's what not. it is. You need a new translating doesn't translate. Software. That's just the last name of the guy who designed the Eiffel Tower. But yeah. by the way, neat fact, there is an apartment in the Eiffel Tower that was his. Oh, no it's way, really? There. And if you bought the Lego set, you got a little model of his uh, of his apartment. Oh, did not yeah. know that either. Neat fact, guy tried to buy Ooh. the Calgary Tower so he could turn that into his apartment. Seriously? Yeah, years ago. Oh, that's kind of lame. I also cool heard a, it's your apartment. Yeah, but I mean, I heard a rumor that uh, somebody was thinking about taking the head off the Calgary Tower and making it taller, and then putting the head back on. 
because it could technically support the weight. Mm. But there's just no way that happens. Just build another Calgary Tower. Or just leave it. I kind of like that. It's time. I like it. It was the it was the torch. It was the, they made the Olympic torch be the Calgary yeah. Tower. So you get to see it. I think that's cool. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, ta-da. That's are you okay? This is the Shift Podcast. The last time I saw Alex Cuba, he was outside in his backyard building a garden. This time, he's got a toucan. He's got a puffy jacket on, and he's trying to stay warm in the winter in BC. And uh, <laughs> oh, how the climate changes, hey? <laughs> isn't that, isn't that a, a sort of a, a reflection of life itself, you know? It is. It very much is. Um, Alex Cuba, a Latin Grammy winner, Grammy winner, all around wicked dude, lives in BC. Um, you know, family heritage runs back through Cuba. Uh, your your dad, uh, the singer, the whole family, artists and music makers. This summer, though, and I'm going to go backwards in time a little bit because I think I can, I think I can read between the lines here of what's going on. This summer, you did a show with the family showed up, Smithers, and then there was the you guys had the wall, the mural on the wall, and all the cool things, and the family shows up, and um, I'm curious. When your family comes to town, do you get re-inspired uh, with family music, or do you go, okay, that's enough of a visit, Dad. You can leave now, <laughs> like most, like many families do. Uh, well, it's always a beautiful thing to visit with family. You know, to see my parents. They came this year, and before that, I saw them like four years, four years before. You know, so it was a long time. Oh, before the pandemic, yeah, even. So during the whole pandemic time, wow. I didn't see. Well, thanks God for technology, right? Because we kept in touch. Uh, speaking a lot on you know over WhatsApp and video and all of that, but it's never it's never like you know like being together and uh, definitely you know being together brings brings back a lot of uh, of my roots, a lot of um, you know my passion for you know where I come from and all of that you know for sure right. So, um, mm-hmm. but these projects that I'm just starting to release began. Um, during the pandemic, I actually uh, was sitting, you know, at my dinner table, having dinner one night, and I get this video from one of my cousins uh, on WhatsApp. The video was uh, with, you know, an auntie of ours singing a cappella. This, this auntie of mine, she never did any singing before. I was, you know, it's always being her husband, my uncle. Um, excuse me. Sorry about that. Uh, who has done all of the singing, but all the time my, my auntie gets dementia and she, she started singing like nonstop, only to leave everybody in the family, you know, like, wow, we didn't know you had that voice. And that's- Yeah, she wasn't supposed to be the one that was singing, exactly. right? Exactly, and that's why, um, that's why my, my cousin said that to me, because she wanted to share with me <coughs> auntie, with, which is, you know, her grandma, singing, right? And I saw that and I'm like, Oh my God, I got. I have to do something with this. It was so natural for me to react that way. I, I felt it really deep in my heart, you know. And what I did is I jumped the video to my computer and extracted the sound since it was a cappella that was she was singing. And I, you know, I turned it into a song. I put music to it and I did the whole thing, you know, and sent it back to them and they were quite moved, you know. Um, even, you know, my cousin was crying, 
my, you know, it was a beautiful thing. And my cousin said to me, hey, you're going to make auntie famous. And I'm like, hey, keep sending me those videos. Start filming people around in the family. This was in the middle of the pandemic, you know. Uh, it had such important vibe, important thing, because all the time we, you know, I felt close to my family in Cuba, you know, family that I haven't seen in many years. And all the time, music, through music, it was a vehicle for us to, you know, to to share some experiences and to to give each other, you know, like faith and hope and all of that, you know. It was in the middle of the pandemic, the, the world wasn't looking pretty. We all know that. And I began working on that. And today I'm sitting on 10 songs like that with my father, with my mother, because, you know, my parents came here, so I was able to say, hey, say hello to my studio. Let's go make some music. My father has written a few songs throughout his life. He's not a like a super prolific writer, but he's written some beautiful songs, like this one that we just released. It's called Tiene Sabor. And my father, it was, it was, I tell you, I experienced something so beautiful with them. When I started working on the song, uh, my father is not used to record, you know, how the way we record these days, which is you use a click and to a click, you record everything else. So I tried to get him to, to lay down his guitar and he wasn't sort of, you know, getting comfortable with it. So I said, Dad, I'm gonna, let me let me do let me do all of the music. I got going all of this, you know, did all of the music. And then he was still thinking that it was me, the one that I was going to sing, right? I said, no, no, I think you can sing it. I think that, I think you can sing it. Wow. And I sat him beside wow. me in front of my microphone, wow. both of us with headphones and away we went. And those first few phrases that he laid down got me so emotional because it was such a beautiful thing to hear my dad, you know, singing, right? Uh, that is a story that about that that I'm going to be, because also, uh, Shane, this, this project is coming out as well as a documentary because I have everything on video. I have what I was, oh, was cool. done in queue in video. And I am taking it, uh, you know, taking the opportunity to tell you know, further stories about my family and music. You know, so the, the, the project in the documentary is called Voices of My Family. When I was growing up, I started writing songs around 14 years old. And I remember my dad telling me, hey, I like this song, because I will show it to him, to, you know, I, I'm looking for advice for, you know, whatever. And he will say, I like it, I like, wow, what a beautiful melody. Maybe change this word for this one, it will sound better, and it will be more direct, whatever. But don't sing my song because I, I don't think you have a voice of a singer. My father would say that to me. No, because he was being. And now, you know, <laughs> no, because he was being. You can, you can say it. No. You can swear. Use your foul language. You're good. No, because he was being, you know, an, an asshole or, 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 or a bad guy. He was just too inside Cuban culture. You know, it's like Cuba has, um, like any other strong culture, you know, uh, this is what a singer should sound like. Only one type of voice, you know, big, bright, capable of commanding a 16-piece band. I always had a smoky, soulful voice. So my dad didn't recognize that in me, right? And he would say, uh, maybe maybe don't sing, because uh, I don't think you have a voice of a singer. So now this is a complete circle, making my father sing. And not Yeah, oh, isn't it though, hey? Not only that, making him sound so beautiful. And now people are like, oh my God, I love his voice. And my dad is not, he doesn't believe himself. So he's been asking me every day because they went back to Cuba. And he's been asking me uh, to give him news. And I said, dad, I, 
I, I don't want to stimulate you too much. Let's just go slow, <laughs> step by step, you know, because <laughs> this could be freaky and weird. So, you know, <laughs> I have a question about that. You know, my favorite, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm crossroads here with a lot of things. I'm crossroads with um, my my definition of love as I've written it is um, love is the word we use to render the experience of presence and connection. I've shared that with you before. And you, um, for you, love and music are, are deeply tangled. And you always say, I'm full of music. Um, to me, my experience of you, I mean, I love your music. I don't understand what you say, but I don't need to understand what you say. I saw you in Ottawa and trust me, it's in Spanish. You do not need to understand the words to get the experience of the love. And so that's the cool part, right? This sort of overflows and you get it. That's where that sort of, you can use all sorts of cliches you like, transcends language and all the bits and pieces. It's legitimate. Like it, it does transcend that. You are this sort of outpouring of love. You call it music. I call it love. I think they're one in the same. Family for you has been... This is my analysis of your family now I'm giving you. Listen to me, but I'm, it's worth it. Um, family for you, I, like I, I've always admired your relationship with your wife and your, I mean, you left Cuba to go to Smithers, BC. I mean, the beaches in Smithers are nice, but they're not that nice. <laughs> and um, you, like you've, you've done, um, you've done uh, so much to support family and love and all of the bits and pieces. And now, Alex, like you have this moment where, you took something your dad said, you believed in yourself, you continue to do it, and then it comes full circle where you get to say to your dad, um, I believe in you. You get to watch your dad grow up. This is something that I've been through with my parents. A year ago, I did this big study. Uh, it's called the Hoffman Process, and I did this big study, and I, um, I s switched gears from being my father's son into being a son who gets to watch my parents grow up. And that lens when that lens flips and here you are now you are saying yeah this is the first time i've heard you hear you say your dad said that you shouldn't have been a singer um but now you're saying exact opposite to your dad dad you should be a singer you should be a singer so you've taken that and turned it around and turned it into a gift to give to other people including the guy who said that that's not you dude like Alex. You understand how deep that, that is, huh? <laughs> oh God! And, like it is. That's that's and, just. And you know what it took? It it took. I, you know what it took? It took me to go away from my own country to arm myself with a lot of strength to conquer the new country, the new language, the new culture. You know, and 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 then be able to look back on my own culture with fresh eyes and teach the ones I left behind, you know, about, about something bigger than, than just one way of thinking, you know, if, 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 if that makes any sense to you. My father, mm -hmm. my father, I find it fascinating now how, how he doesn't have any shame or any shyness to show his peers back in Cuba, him himself singing. That is so powerful. I think, I think, it, it tells so many stories in so in so many different levels. You know, it's a, it tells the story of support, how important it is. It ter, ter, uh, tells a story of um, of I don't know, all, 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 of of you know, as cliche as it sounds, always follow your heart. You know, even if the ones yeah. that you love the most are there and not supporting you at the minute. You know, and not supporting. Well, you it's minute. amazing. 
Well, you talk about your auntie who wasn't supposed to be the singer your uncle was, and then yet she sings and it's beautiful. Now your dad, who's not really a songwriter, um, he sings and it's beautiful. So I've always heard your family conversation as this, you know, as the, like the, the, the Partridge family of Cuba, the Puentes family of, of musicians and singing. But really what's happened is that there's a group of people, a family that has been singing and they've been sharing their love and their soul with music, with the world, but really they actually haven't. Mm -hmm. They've been mostly sharing it, but once they actually let it go, imagine where it goes when they truly share everybody's voice and don't be, you know, hold it back a little bit. Cause I mean, it's beautiful where it's going when it just is such a great example about when you actually let it go and surrender yourself to it, where it goes. I mean, you can be an expert, you can be the best, you can be amazing, but when you surrender to it and set it free, I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's off the charts. Right. And you're seeing that. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, it is such a beautiful thing um, because inspiration happens and creativity happens in a very interesting way in the creative mind, you know? We get these advances of, of something that could be, you know what I'm saying? So, but the beautiful part of it is that once you get going on it, you yourself start realizing what it is and, and, and how big it could be and how immense it is, you know? And that's exactly what's happening to me right now. I, of course, I didn't think about any of this when I was creating this project, you know? It just came mm -hmm. to me as a way of celebrating the side of the family from where music, you know, comes from to me, right? I think these people have maintained music alive. Um, they have used music as a way of remaining hopeful, happy, cheerful, you know what I mean? And, and, mm -hmm. and so part of me, you know, I need to show this side of the family to, to the world. You know, I need to, you know, let, let people see where I come from, you know, and what values, so so what beautiful values these, these people have, you know, that live in the countryside in Cuba and maybe, you know, to, to a lot of people, you know, in the developed world, the way they live is, you know, is poor in many ways. And But these people have a lot a lot of kindness and a lot of love in their hearts. And that's what I'm hoping to share through this. But as you say, it just grabs more depth and more and more as it goes, you know, because it's, it's it's just beautiful to be able to to share with your family, to to sing with your family, to show the love you all feel through music, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And this summer you got to sing, um, your family came up to Smithers and that being there singing with them all around, that must've been a beautiful moment for you. Did you have that? Were you able to have that presence where you stopped and looked around and go, I'm in the middle of BC. My dad's here. Everybody's here and we're singing together. I mean, that must've been, um, that must've been quite the grounding moment of, whoa, this is happening. It, it was one of the highlights of the summer for sure. And we got lucky, even luckier. We got to do it again. We did it twice. We, uh, quickly had got hired, you know, from another festival down south here in BC, in Comox. And it was incredible. So I, I did a show. The show that I did there was a little bit different because here in Smithers, I had my band, my usual band. I flew them this way. And then, you know, I um, was able to have my brother too and my parents, you know, so she was, it was a really strong thing. But down there, I did the show in a different way. I, I didn't have the band. It was just the four of us, but I began the show by myself playing like four or five songs. 
And then I started bringing out family members, you know, to the surprise of the, a lot of people in the audience. And first, hmm. first one out was my brother. And people, were, oh yeah. Second one was my dad, and people went nuts. And then third one and last was my mother, and people went like, we were playing for about maybe three thousand people there, and it was just wonderful. People still. I went back. Uh, now, um, a, the third week of. Uh, in September, when I did a little tour of BC again, I went to Campbell River, which is a place that is nearby Comox, and people were still talking to me about that family show. So I think a, performing with the family, you know, showing that kind of synchronicity, that kind of love, what, that kind of vibe that we, you know, that we can, we're able to, to, to manifest, not even trying because we're family, you know, is very infectious, you know, to people. It's very uh, engaging. It's very beautiful for people to see. And um, so I was, I felt, you know, I felt lucky. I felt so, so lucky to be able to, to do that. It, it was quite a celebration, or you know, the family celebration after so many years. Me without me being my, seeing my parents, you know. So it was quite a, quite quite a celebration, you know. Because it would have been different if they came up here. And we didn't do any music, you know, so, uh, whatever. It's just, just a visit, you know, but music kept. Yeah, sit in the backyard. Yeah. Music kept us mm -hmm. uh, vibrating. And my dad was so excited. Um, then uh, after, because I recorded two songs with him. One is the one that you just released. That is, is him only singing. He sings all of the lead. I'm there doing all backing vocals and harmonies and stuff with my brother. And did, you know, all the instruments myself. Then the other one I'm singing as a duet with him, another song that he wrote. And then the third one I wrote it myself, uh, starting from, from a poetry that he, uh, that my grandfather, his, his father, used to tell him something kind of funny, you know, like a super funny poetry. And my dad was in the mood. I realized that he was like feeling really good about, you know, feeling, feeling great and all of that. And so I, you know, I put my phone to record in a place that he didn't see it, so he didn't know that I was recording him. Oh, I love and it. And I got my father reciting this super funny poetry in a way, man, that you don't have to understand the language, you know, to, to laugh, because he's got so much energy, his voice is so funny. And then I created a song to that, and it's super funny, you know. So um, I have, um, th that's one of my favorite songs from the, from the project, actually, because it's funny, mm. it's so beautiful. And uh, so the other songs are my auntie singing songs that my my uncle wrote himself, you know, because um, he's quite the the, the 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 creative person, the songwriter. I have my uncle singing two songs. Uh, I have um, my brother singing one song with me as a duet. Uh, and yeah, ten songs, voices of my family. Cool. I love it. Um, speaking of shows, NPR has a show called Tiny Desk, very stripped down show that is, um, you know as raw and natural as it gets. And uh, you are going to take the tiny desk and, and take it over and, and share it with all of us. What was that like? That was an incredible experience. That was an incredible experience. And I think um, I am very satisfied with how it came out. You're right. It's completely stripped down. It's not even the perfect conditions for a musician to, to go and perform. You know, you see it and they do an amazing work mixing it. Uh, and it sounds incredible, uh, but I know that uh, you know I heard stories there that many musicians when they get there, 
and they are told how to do it, they freeze up because it's, it's basically, I mean, you have to play super quiet because it's not a, it's not a music venue per se, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so that throws some, some musicians off, you know, to have to play differently for something that has the potential, potential of so many people watching it, right? And they say, basically, if you can hear the voice of the singer, you're playing too loud. But my band was is so flexible. I I was able to, I added in purpose, two extra musicians to to my band. You know my trio, and then I added a percussionist that I brought up from Miami to Washington, and and and, and a guy to sing backing vocals and play minor minor percussion together with my bass player singing backing vocals. And the reason why I did that is because I wanted, of course, I wanted to have the percussion in there. I wanted to communicate in. As many levels as possible, you know, and people tend to mm-hmm. people tend to see me with an electric guitar in my hand and my afro, and they go, "Oh, is this uh, some kind of a tropical Lenny Kravitz <laughs> or or a Jimmy <laughs> tropical Lenny Kravitz?" Yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness! Yeah, so having having the percussion <laughs> in there is said uh, is uh, where I'm com- where I'm you know said everything about me, I guess you know, in in many different levels. But it was an absolute incredible experience to prepare yourself mentally for it. It's quite a trip. Because you know that a lot of people, you know, will watch it, and if you don't really do a good job at it, you know, that was your your only chance. So that mm-hmm. level of pressure, I am proud to say that my band took it easily. Nobody underestimated, but everybody was ready for it, and it was just fantastic. I am very proud that I got to do it. This was a long time coming. I uh, I had um just be, I mean before Tiny Desk. I actually went into the NPR headquarters in Washington and they were doing this video series. And then, and I did one of those, it's still floating on the internet, uh, singing my song, Sip, I don't know. And then a year after that or something like that, they started doing Tiny Desk. And I, I hmm. joke with them when we finally, finally, you know, did it there. I said, you guys made me wait so long because you, you were pretending that that old thing that I did, that was my Tiny Desk already. And you didn't want to bring me any sooner, but I wait. Oh, that's funny. But you know, as you know, that is a waiting list for that. That it's like years of waiting list. People wanted to get there to play, to do the tiny. Yeah, well, it's amazing. It's a, it literally is like a desk. You have to imagine it's kind of like a well, it's like a a, a cubicle desk, yeah. but it looks more like it's halfway between a storage closet and a kindergarten. <laughs> um, yeah. And everybody's crammed, right? Like everyone's crammed in the spot. And just just to give some context of what NPR Tiny Desk, I mean, you're talking Cypress Hill has worked this. Um, Post Malone has a tiny desk. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. Um, Roots have done a tiny desk. Wu-Tang Clan has done a tiny desk. Uh, desk. Sam Smith has done tiny desk. And um, when you got Smokey Robinson, Maluma, like you've got like like these lists of people that's Alex Cuba. That's that's you in that list, just mixed all in there. Thank you. And um, I think that's that's such a great testament. Uh, quickly before we're done here, Alex, the um, it sounds to me like you're creating succession in your life, and I just wanted to acknowledge that. You know, you you've got these songs that are a part of you know voices of your family in the documentary, and and we'll get um, the the new single here with your dad um, coming out. But I mean. I don't know if you've thought about it. This is something that's been on my mind a lot lately, but there will be a day when you have that. You have your dad's voice. You have those videos. You have that song. And not only have you given yourself that gift, 
but your children, your grandchildren, down the road, yeah. you're going to be able, especially in today's world, we can't forget that. You have an opportunity to give the gift. Our grandparents, we have maybe what, black and white photos, that's it, that's all we can look at. And, um, but we have the opportunity if we take it, much like the way you are, to give that gift for generations to come, to be able to hear those voices and see what they're like and get the personality. So you've allowed yourself not only that love, but you've given that succession to all the generations that come to see, you know, you and your your dad and your mom. Like, man, that's a beautiful thing. And I think the day will come I'm where a- you're going to shake your finger at me and go, Shane Hewitt, this is the moment where I needed that video. Yeah. I'm, I already think about it. I look at the video that we did for the song. We were able to shoot a little, you know, like a performance, simple video of my dad here without singing the song. And just before we got uh, on the call, uh, I started playing it here on my computer and and um, and that thought was already crossing my mind, of course, you know, it's like, this is like like a gift that I've given to myself in a lot of ways, you know? And I'm thinking already how it will be for me, you know, when my father is finally, you know, not, not here, when he's, when he's gone, I mean, um, which happens to all of us, you know, we all have an end date, right? How, what, what will, what would I feel when I look at that, you know, and and hear his voice? So yeah, yeah, it is, it is. Um, like I said, it's it's something that I got in my heart. Uh, something told me when I saw that video of my auntie, you need to do something for this, with this, and I am so happy, so grateful that that feeling entered my heart. And, and 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 then I found a way to to move on it quickly and, and make things happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I look forward to hearing more. Um he's a handsome devil though, isn't he? <laughs> he is, oh. I can see the video I can see see the video in the background. Um that's so cool, man. You're gonna you're gonna love that. You're gonna love that. Um it's beautiful. Congratulations on the music on the tiny desk. Congratulations on all of it. I, I love our chats. It always makes me feel great. You leave me feeling touched and inspired. And that's even before you play music. So imagine what it's like when you start singing too. So it's great to see hey, brother, you. And I, I, and I appreciate I got that. two things to tell you before you go. Yeah. One is that I, I will be releasing on December 8th for the first, the very first time ever, a Christmas song that I wrote. Oh, great. Aleku has a Christmas song coming, and I think you're gonna like it. Um, well, I love Christmas, it, and I love you. So there you go. It will put, it will put you in a beautiful mood immediately because he has a lot of my roots in it. It's very catchy, very rhythmical, very uplifting, and I'm really happy that I was able to do it. That's one thing. Second thing is that I'm in Calgary, playing a show at the Jack Singer Concert Hall with the Philharmonic Orchestra next spring so look out for that you are my guest you are invited if you want to go to the show i would love to thank you very much you're wonderful um and you look pretty good covering up that big beautiful afro in your car heart too <laughs> being very bc right now yeah okay? yeah i like i like i like getting home <laughs> well it kind of it's kind of my time to you know to know to have to um to to look good every day you know because i i, I just came back home from a, a month long on the road you know, five shows in BC, then the United States for five more shows, and then I crossed over to Spain for four shows. Wow. So all of that time, looking my best. I get, I get home and I forget about my Afro. I want to put in 
underneath my hat. I want to <laughs> let my beard grow. I want to be real. I want to be human. You know. <laughs> I love it. It's beautiful. Uh, it's great to see you, Alex Cuba. Thanks for being here, brother. Oh, my pleasure. Always fun to speak with you. Thanks so much. This is the Shift Podcast. The Shift AV Club is going on this weekend with uh, Thursday night, Friday morning. Steve Stepping will be here as we review two movies. Mm -hmm. The Spooky Wheel this year was jam-packed with some of the coolest horror movies I could find. And yet Shift Heads overwhelmingly decided to vote for Monsters, Inc. Now we're still watching one horror movie, which is Get Out, which you can watch on Netflix. But I was so uh, motivated by the lack of enthusiasm for the horror movies that I have decided to take it upon myself to watch every single one of those horror movies and do little micro reviews for you um, of all of the ones that I put on the list. And so... Ryan's is mad because everybody voted for not the horror movie. Yeah, pretty much. But uh, so uh, too bad. Here we go. Bring out the spooky wheel. <laughs> the tiny wheel actually does have spooky movies. It's so terrifying. No one seems to mind. Spooky. <laughs> I love that. So, spooky. Yes. Now, what spooky movie did I watch? Well... I watched the movie that I voted for, uh, which was, and I couldn't find a good trailer for it because all of them were really, really weirdly quiet. But I did find one little segment from a very old trailer to uh, get us started with Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Freddy's just around the corner. He's around all the corners. So this is an interesting movie. I had never seen it before. Part three, I had been told by many people, was the best Nightmare on Elm Street, which is a high brow because Nightmare on Elm Street Part One is one of the most iconic horror movies ever. Mm-hmm. Freddy Krueger, the claw hand, killing you know, hor- you know, teenagers in their dreams, like that whole gimmick is Showers. amazing horror. The shower. That's probably why I don't like them, by the way, because that was the that, one that I watched. And then in my bathroom next to my bedroom in my house, the well, shower was, was behind me. For you, though. Friday I don't the 13th know. was the one you. That's the, the shower is Friday the 13th. See there? That's why I don't like them. Yeah. I did watch both of them. Yeah. Which there one is was a, the, Yeah, that was the shower one. Yeah. 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 Friday the 13th has the shower. There is a shower okay. scene in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, which I also watched mm-hmm. over the weekend. Freddie had the sweater, right? Freddie has the red and green sweater, the right. burned face, the hat, and he's really funny. Like, he makes really hilarious one-liners before he, you know, takes the kill. And it was interesting watching this movie because so many people hyped it up as the actually the best one. I don't think it is. I still think the first one is the best. However, part three has some of the most creative unintentionally, maybe intentionally hilarious kills I've ever seen in a movie. Like, it is actually genius what they came up with because it really, like, feels like you're in a nightmare and you're in a dream, and it makes no sense. And then there's this goofy one-liner that kind of comes out of nowhere. And at the same time, though, there are a couple of kills in this movie that were quite shocking and, like, oh, whoa. So, tonally, it was 
very interesting because it kind of flip flop between very spooky and then also kind of campy and fun. Uh, so I enjoyed it. I think if you are looking to watch a uh, slasher at hor- uh, you know, for a horror party or a Halloween party, I would still go with the first one. But this franchise is a fun one to marathon. Do not watch the fourth one. It's terrible. Don't do it. It's awful. See, uh, Stick with the third one. This is why I struggle with this because you say kills like it's normal. Well, And that makes – like for me, I'm like, dude, how can you say that? Yeah, I, I know. I know. I, of course, it's not normal. But it's almost – it's there's so – there's something special about watching horror movies from the 1980s because it's easy to separate that this is just a movie. Like they don't look real. It's very clearly makeup and special effects and they get creative with how they do it to the point where you can kind of laugh and be like, Oh my God, I can't believe they just did that. And it's a nice, uh, they do a really good job of striking that balance. Now tomorrow night on the shift, I will be reviewing child's play Chucky, the doll, which is also a horror franchise. I have never seen because I was terrified of Chucky as a kid. Mm -hmm. This is one of those horror movies. We got an email about this and I'll talk more about it tomorrow. This is one of those movies as a kid. I could not, would not watch however i'm gonna put the big boy pants on tomorrow i'm gonna watch this movie and i'll let you know if i think it's actually terrifying or if it's any good leading up to halloween you know what's really scary for me what's that how you can have two hours to watch a movie every day oh that's another thing these movies are only like 70 minutes 80 minutes you can power through them (laughs) nice and easy oh Uh, Okay, well, there you go. For all of the Ryans really trying to bring horror to everybody to to love it. So we're going to listen to those reviews of the movie leading up to Halloween. And that also, just for everyone else who's more into Monsters, Inc. like I am, allows us to know about them and let Ryan talk about them. and, And he can be the expert. And that's cool with me. So are you watching these on your new computer, by the way? Uh, Yes, and they look gorgeous and some of the remasters on these old movies the colors pop so nicely they're just they look so good but the fake blood looks like more pink it's Mm. pretty funny thanks for listening to the shift podcast make sure you subscribe rate and review the show and share with anyone you like get it on apple podcast google podcast spotify and curiouscast.ca 